This episode is brought to you with the support of one of our very favorite small family owned businesses, which is prettylittlelightcandleco.com. Lauren started this business with her daughter as a homeschool project. So it started out as a project turned into a family business that was just like a small business um, selling to people local that turned into a larger family business and ministry. They really do put ministry first in everything they do and they make excellent candles. Rita and I are extremely picky about what we will have in our house, including the candles that we burn. And Lauren actually helped educate us on why these candles are good. These are safe burning fragrances, safer than using essential oils, phthalate free. These are the kind of candles that you can feel comfortable having in your home, giving as gifts to anyone in your life, whether it's your mother or mother-in-law, your friends, your sisters, anything like that. They also do fundraising opportunities. You know how kids can sell candy bars and stuff. Well, you can also do that with pretty little light candles. So you can contact them and look into that option if you have a school or a sports team or something like that. So prettylittlelightcandleco.com. Enter the code BOOMCLAP to save on your order. Welcome to the Boom Clap podcast. This is Cecily speaking. I am interviewing someone today. His name is Dr. Andy Steiger, and we are going to be talking about made which is short for medical assistance in dying which is another way to say assisted suicide which is another way to say intentional killing there's a lot of different ways that you can say it canada has just chosen the neat and tidy title of medical assistance in dying so This is an issue that is huge in Canada right now. It is of hot debate in the courts, in government, in churches, in honestly everyday lives of everyday people because there is no one that will not be touched by this. Canada has the most progressive assisted suicide laws in the world, which is staggering when you think about it. So the reason that I asked um, Dr. Andy Steiger to come on is because he wrote an article for the Canadian Supreme Court Law Review um, regarding medical assistance and dying and the rights and responsibilities of conscience, specifically as it applies to physicians who are called to participate in medical assistance in dying. So in Canada at this time, they are not required to actually do the assistance in dying if they have a conscientious objection to it. However, they are still required to give an active or sorry, an effective referral to someone that will, which in a sense still leaves them, not in a sense, in reality, it leaves them with the responsibility still as 81% of all maid referrals do result in that person's death via maid. So he wrote an incredible article about this and I loved every single word of it, every single page of it. So I had to invite him on. Actually, interestingly, He is the founder and president of Apologetics Canada, which that will sound familiar to you because a few weeks back we had Steve Kim on talking about transhumanism and Steve works with Andy at Apologetics Canada. 
which is really cool. They are a great group of guys. They do amazing work. You're going to hear a little bit at the beginning about apologetics as well. We do get lots of questions about apologetics because Rita and I often will talk about it just kind of offhand without getting into great detail on the podcast. And some people are wondering like what exactly that is. Is it just like a really good apology? (laughs) Um, And that is not the case. So because we had an actual apologetics expert on, we thought that we would get him to run through that at the beginning. So let's just introduce him a little bit. Andy is the author of Reclaimed, How Jesus Restores Our Humanity in a Dehumanized World. This book was awarded runner-up to Evangelistic Resource of the Year. Currently, Andy is working on a brand new video series, Branded, a series on identity that addresses our personal, communal, and spiritual identity. Preceding this, he created the Human Project video series, and in 2018, the Human Project debuted at film festivals around the world and won a number of awards, including Best Short Film and People's Choice. Andy also created and hosted the Thinking series and is the author of Thinking, Answering Life's Five Biggest Questions, which is a great book. I have read it. Andy speaks on gospel questions internationally at universities, conferences, churches, prisons, and coffee shops. Between his 20 years of experience as a pastor and his completion of a PhD at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, Andy brings both experience and research to his work. And he actually lives fairly close by to where I live in British Columbia with his wife, Nancy, and their two boys. This is a really interesting conversation, you guys. I really think you're going to love hearing what Andy has to say. So without further ado, here is our interview with Andy. Hi, Andy. Thank you so much for joining us. You are from Apologetics Canada as well. We just had Steve Kim on not long ago, and you're actually the founder of Apologetics Canada, which um, it's a great organization. The podcast that you guys release weekly, I was telling you earlier, it's one of my favorites. It's one of the only podcasts I listen to every single week. So thank you for doing what you do. And I would just love it if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and then also the ministry that you have at Apologetics Canada. Yeah, so just a little bit about me. Uh, I'm originally from Portland, Oregon. I am one of those Americans that <laughs> thought that Canada was a part of the U.S. that no one talked about. I, <laughs> I apologize. I once was one of those. I heard, though, about Canada and that I could uh, go to school for cheaper there. So that's what mm. brought me up here. The beauty of this place has kept me, and I fell in love with a beautiful Canadian girl and got <laughs> married. We've been married for 22 years. Wow. We have two kids. Uh, um, a 15 year old and tomorrow one's turning 14. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm a dad, uh, a husband. I love hiking, love living in British Columbia, love all things outdoors mm-hmm. and, um, pastoring. So I pastored for 20 years and I've had the privilege of founding and leading Apologetics Canada for, uh, going on 13 years now. Oh, that's awesome. You know, it's actually kind of funny that Rita is not on this episode because you and I both live in BC, actually relatively close to each other. And Rita is from Illinois. And so usually when we do this podcast, it's like one American and one Canadian or two Americans and one Canadian. And it's very rare that we have just two Canadians, no Americans at all. Well, I mean, you probably have dual citizenship, right? Well, I like to think of myself as an honorary Canadian now that I've lived in Canada longer than the U.S. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Love it. Okay. Um, So because you founded Apologetics Canada, 
We thought this was a great opportunity to talk a little bit about what apologetics is. This isn't the main point of our conversation today. We're going to be getting into made, as I said in the introduction, but we get a lot of questions both Rita and I, about apologetics. Because when we are releasing podcast episodes, we will often mention apologetics, but we haven't really gotten into the like, the the what is it? We've just kind of assumed that there was a knowledge about it, which is something we shouldn't have done. We've discovered as we've been getting these questions coming in and we thought, well, who better to kind of give our audience for those who aren't really familiar with apologetics, uh, like a baseline understanding of what it is. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what apologetics is um, and then also why you specifically wanted to get into it. And also as like a three-part question, I'm sorry, I hate when people do this because you're like, okay, got to keep track of it. But also I really believe apologetics is incredibly important. It always has been, but like in this cultural moment that we're living in, I think it's really important. So maybe you can kind of explain those things. Yeah. So what is it and why is it so important? Yes. And why did you get into it? Oh yeah. Why did I get into it? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Oh, wow. So this is good. Maybe I'll start with why I got into it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have always wanted to be a missionary. Uh, I never Mm -hmm. saw myself as, oh man, I want to found an organization called Apologetics Canada. Right. But when I was uh, in Los Angeles doing my master's degree at Biola University, having every intention of heading off in the mission field, I heard about how many young people were leaving the faith. As also at that mm-hmm. time, with you know, you had the new atheists and people were just challenging Christianity, and people were looking for answers. Mm-hmm. And they and there weren't, yeah, there were people answering, but there were people doing stuff, but but not a lot, and particularly not a lot in Canada. I heard about an organization called Apologetics.com out of LA, which I, I love those guys dearly. They do great mm-hmm. work and they inspired me. I got invited, long story short, invited to participate on their radio show in Los Angeles. And I began to see just how effective it was when people understood the culture and mm-hmm. would address the questions that the culture was asking. And And I saw people come to faith and I saw people strengthen in their faith. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, I wanted to bring apologetics.com to Canada. And, mm-hmm. and I did. We eventually dropped the .com and okay. that's how we got our name, Apologetics Canada. Oh, awesome. I know some people are like, wow, that's a really grandiose, you know, national, you know, name. Mm. But we never saw it that way. We always saw ourselves as Apologetics.com Canada. And okay. then we, you know, have just continued to do this uh, this work here in Canada. So if apologetics is a, a new word for you and uh, or an unfamiliar word, I know it kind of confuses people because sadly in English, it sounds a lot like apologizing. Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> which is like kind of the running joke in in apologetics ministries when they introduce it. But it comes from the Greek word apologia, and it it means to give an answer or a reason. And and what is important to understand is that this is a part of the Christian tradition going all the way back to the Bible, where you have the disciples such as Peter, but Paul and others using this word Mm -hmm. uh, apologia. And in in fact, in Greece today, they still use this word. It's mm-hmm. still pronounced the same and has the same meaning. Mm-hmm. It means like uh, to give a, an answer, like in a court of law, to give an answer for yourself. And and you see, uh, for example, like Peter doing that and Peter telling the church, you should be able to do that in mm-hmm. Peter uh, 3.15. 
uh, to give an answer for the hope that we have in Jesus and to do so with gentleness and respect. So, so that's what it is. Now, I just want to say one other thing about it that's important, and that is just the long tradition that Christians have been participating in this. And, mm-hmm. and you can see that going all the way back. And this kind of maybe helps us dive into the topic for today. Mm-hmm. You can go all the way back to early church fathers like Tertullian writing in the, you know, he lived in the year 150 uh, uh, in that area. I think that was about when he was born. And he wrote a significant document called the Apology, right? Mm-hmm. Or the Apologetic, where he was in a culture of persecution, very similar to what we experience today in Canada and the United States, kind of like this low-grade cultural disgust mm-hmm. for, for Christian values. Mm-hmm. And he defended them. And in fact, in his defense, we have the first recorded argument and phrase, uh, freedom of religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, like like the, he coined that, you know, and argued for it. And we are the recipients really of hard work that was done all, you know, thousands of years ago as people were arguing for the Christian um, worldview. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And I do think it's really, you know, like you mentioned, like kind of what you, what got you interested in it way back, not way back in the day, sorry, but back when you first kind of got introduced to it. But I think now today, like, like you said, there's this low grade cultural disgust for Christian values, which is becoming more and more apparent every single day. Yeah. And even just the uh, the questions that the culture throws at at believers and at our children, right? You know, I have three kids ranging in age from eight to eleven, and they already have a major need for apologetics. Like I think of when I was a kid, I grew up in a Christian home, and all of these things were kind of assumed, like your faith was assumed, et cetera. You never really had to have an answer for what you believe and why, right? But now already I've, I've sent my oldest kid through an apologetics course, um, through Frank Turek's online Christian courses. And I will be doing that with my younger as well. And we talk about it all the time because they're, even though we homeschool, they are hit with these cultural things every day and they can already feel that there is this um, disgust for what we believe. So I really think the work that you guys are doing is so important and you do do it with grace, which is amazing because there are a lot of Christ- or people that call themselves Christians that really have a lot of the truth with none of the grace. And um, it's really important. Yeah, our, our tagline is to love God and to love people, yeah. which, which is quoting Jesus, where he mm-hmm. talks like in places like Mark chapter 12, where he quotes the Shema, um, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 19 and love, and love your neighbors yourself. Yeah. But by the way, one thing that's really great about what you're doing, and I think is important for parents to hear, is that you need to be engaged in the conversation. So even for me, uh, we have Thursday night talk nights at the Steiger mm. House. Oh, that's where, awesome. Yeah. Instead of waiting for culture to attack our kids mm-hmm. on certain issues, we've just kind of proactively said, okay, yes. here's what culture's doing. Here's what culture's saying. Or, hey, yeah. this was in the news. Let's talk about it. Uh, this was in a movie we just watched. Let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a YouTube video I watched. You know, let's talk about it. That that sort of thing. So we're way more engaged. And I would just encourage yeah. any parents listening to this: uh, don't wait for culture to mm-hmm. attack. Just be be more proactive. Uh, totally. I think I'm finding that to be very helpful. 
Yeah. And it's fun too, right? I mean, it's way more fun than just kind of like passing the days without any deep discussion with your kids. Um, I think it's cool to see how their brains think through things and really to watch them developmentally. You know, when we have these sorts of conversations, we really enjoy it. So yeah, you had talked a bit about, um, where freedom of religion started. And we're going to get into that and we're going to get into rights and responsibilities of conscience and freedom of conscience. But before we do that, I just wanted to have you talk through with us what MAID is and the progression of it that we've seen in Canada since 2016 when it was officially approved. Um, I know that the people that listen to your podcast and people that listen to our podcast regularly will know that it's medical assistance in dying. Um, But yeah, do you want to just kind of talk us through what we've seen happen really rapidly, actually, since 2016? Yeah, and one of the things that I've noticed when I started researching this topic, uh, I was... I was presenting on the subject of MAID. I was, and we'll get into it today, but I was challenging specific specific aspects of it that are happening in Canada at mm. the World Congress in Philosophy of Law this last summer. Mm. And as I started researching this topic, what I realized is, you know, yes, MAID became a legal case in 2015 mm. and then became law in 2016. But it, it, this has been a battle going back into the 70s and 90s. Like mm-hmm. you you see court, like people have been lobbying for this a long time. And there right. have been a lot of court cases and a lot of battles. Uh, but what we're seeing is when the battle was lost. So mm-hmm. this is, so it's just important for people to appreciate. Sometimes people go, wow, where did this come from? Or I can't believe right. that we're here. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, these battles have been going on for, for a while. And yeah. This is where we're currently at sort of idea. So with regards to uh, MAID, uh, what what we're talking about here is very unique in Canada in that notice that it's medical assistance in in dying, Mm -hmm. uh, which by the way, you don't have to use the word MAID, uh, but that's just kind of a more palatable term than Mm -hmm. doctor assisted suicide or or killing on demand, those sorts of things. But that's what we're talking about. We're talking about Mm -hmm. killing another person. We're talking about taking Mm -hmm. another person's life, which is unique in Canada because you have other places, for example, Oregon, where you have euthanasia, um, meaning good death. Uh, So you you have euthanasia, but uh, you have you get prescribed pills and you have to take them right. yourself. So you you are doing the act of killing uh, to yourself. Whereas here in Canada, the physician uh, will take your life for you, sort of idea. And so that's an important distinction to understand because this is a lot of the a lot of what we'll talk about today is around that. It's it's on one. It, there's two issues at play, and often what we hear with regards to this issue is just with regards to the, the patient. But what we'll talk about today is that this is more than just an issue of the patient, but of the physician as well. And what's being required in Canada of a physician. Yeah, it is. It's a really interesting angle to look at it. And, you know, coming out of these quote COVID years is a really good time to look at that because I mean, I'm actually a nurse or I was a nurse up until 2020. I released my license then. And Rita was a a critical care ICU nurse for 
or cardiovascular ICU nurse for like 14 years. Um, and so she actually lost her job during COVID and because of policies, et cetera. I know doctors that have lost their jobs. I know many nurses that have lost their jobs. Um, and you know, it's, it, uh, if you have compassion towards those people, that have lost their jobs because of a medical decision, you know, you can start to kind of see it from that perspective, you know, like from the perspective of a medical professional. Um, but this is different still in the fact that, you know, it's not their own personal medical decision. It's a medical decision that someone else is making and that they're being forced in some way to participate in it, even though it goes against what they might believe. Right. So, it's it's a really interesting and important angle. Go ahead. Oh, but just just so that people are aware, I mean, mm -hmm. this is this issue with regards to the medical profession. I mean, they've been hit hard over Absolutely. over these last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Not just with the pandemic, but then with these other issues. I mean, we've had mm -hmm. abortion going on for a while yeah. and these other, you know, serious ethical issues that deal with what I refer to as, you know, foundational issues mm -hmm. with regards to taking life. Mm -hmm. And now we have with made. So you can imagine the kind of existential crisis that a lot of people are, are un, unaware that the level of burnout in the medical profession oh, yeah, it's is huge. astronomical right now. And a lot of it has to do with the ethical dilemmas that our, our um, medical professionals are being, you know, mm -hmm. forced into or, mm -hmm. or are having thrusted upon them. So I have met so many that have either left the profession mm -hmm. or desperately want to leave the profession. Mm -hmm. I even met one lady. She's she's better now. I always have to like say this right. before I, I share, but uh, one, we were having dinner and she was just sharing with me how things got so bad for her. She started cutting herself. Oh, we're talking about wow. a physician here. Uh, yeah. And, and that like, that's the level of ethical pressure mm -hmm. being put on yeah on our, our doctors and medical professionals. Well, I mean, and that's ethical pressure from like big issues, like you, like you said, like foundational ones as far as life and death, right? But then there's also all the smaller ethical battles that doctors and nurses fight every day. I mean, I worked in home health for the majority of my career as a nurse and just seeing the way the system worked and the way certain people were ne neglected. And, um, you know, well, it worked better for the budget if we do things this way. Meanwhile, old ladies aren't being seen till one o'clock in the afternoon and they can't get out of bed. And these are all those little tiny ethical things that stack up and they lead to all the bigger things as well. So it's like, yes, they're feeling the pressure from those really huge foundational things, but it doesn't negate the fact that there's all these other little things that are putting the weight on as well. And it's, it's crazy because we really need medical professionals. But at the same time, when I think about my own kids um, growing up, I'm like, oof, I know I should encourage you in that direction because uh, we need that, but I don't want to encourage my kids in that direction because it's, it's setting yourselves up for a lot of really hard things. Yeah. I have a, I have a friend who is an ER physician and the, the, the challenges with regards to even just the opioid crisis oh, yeah. uh, and homelessness and these other issues and how that's impacting the medical profession. And again, it's just, it's just compounding the mm -hmm. ethical burden that weighs on them. And so my heart, yeah. my heart really goes out to them. Oh, absolutely. Them and you know, social workers and all sorts of things yep. that fall yep. under that like public category. Right. Um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about conscience because that's going to set up the rest of this conversation. Um, 
Because that's really what your article that you wrote. And remind me, you wrote the article for the Supreme Court Law Review. Yeah, the Canadian Supreme Court Law Review. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You wrote an article called Rights and Responsibilities of Conscience for the Canadian Supreme Court Law Review. I don't know why I'm having such a hard time getting that name in my head. Um, And yeah, like the title suggests, it focused on conscience. So can you talk us through freedom of conscience? Um, You had like a big section on that. And I don't think a lot of people really fully understand what this means and why it's so important in a conversation like the one we're having about MADE. Yeah, so the first thing to note is in the Canadian uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, I would just encourage any Canadian, Mm. uh, go and grab that. It's online. It's easily accessible with a quick Google search. uh, Mm -hmm. And just read that because what you see is... Uh, you know, kind of laying out what our guaranteed rights and freedoms are as as Mm -hmm. Canadians. And Mm -hmm. one of those rights and uh, guarantees is the freedom of religion and conscience. Now, in the charter, those two are kind of combined. But in the court cases uh, and in different rulings, they have been separated. So they do they do see these things as distinct. So a freedom of religion and freedom of conscience. Mm-hmm. And when we're talking about conscience, we're not talking about consciousness. Uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're, so it's not like the ability to be conscious. We're th- talking about actually being conscious of moral rights and wrongs, uh, mm-hmm. of how you ought to behave sort of thing. And this is significant because when we're talking about our, uh, you know, our our freedom of conscience, we're saying that we are free to listen to the guiding of our moral, you know, compass. Mm-hmm. Now, this I argue in the paper is foundational to a democracy. And I know yeah. it's going to be unique for some people. They've never really thought this way. Mm-hmm. But a democracy is really predicated on the idea that if you put a bunch of people together and you allow them to be free, that their moral conscience is going to guide them. Yeah. And and so this, this, I, I, this kind of thinking sometimes is actually hard for Christians to wrap their minds around mm-hmm. because they're, they're never quite sure, well, how does sin work into this? Right. So we're saying that people... It's kind of like what Paul talks about actually in Romans. Paul says, listen, people, all people have a, a moral conscience that they know what's right or wrong. And then he says, right, that they become a law unto themselves, right? Where he's saying they have this understanding, for example, that you shouldn't kill. And in fact, when we look across history, cultures, all people have recognized that you shouldn't kill. Um C.S. Lewis, by the way, in his book, The Abolition of Man, uh, plays plays this out. It, this is part of his uh, premise of, of that book. And in the back of the book, uh, he actually just lists out a bunch of cultures historically uh, mm-hmm. and just going, hey, look, they're actually very consistent on this point. There is a moral conscience that people understand. But Paul's point was, can you live up to it? Are you even living up to your own understanding mm-hmm. of what is right and wrong? So when uh, free people come together, they have these moral convictions. And what's, what's key to these moral convictions is that these moral convictions only happen when or, or take place 
when persons come into relationship with other persons. And that that's a key idea to understand. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think uh, it can be really hard for people to understand, especially today when it does feel so divided that people do on both sides, I say both sides, often it feels like there's more than two, but distinctly it feels like there's two sides, right? Um, that you can look at the other side and be like, well, they don't have a moral conscience at all. Um, so it's good to be reminded that looking back generally throughout the millennia, people have agreed on the basics of morality um, so that we can embrace truly freedom of conscience, right? Um, it actually, when I was reading through that section that you just talked about, it reminded me of um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He did um, a speech at Harvard called A World Split Apart. And he was basically saying that, you know, he wouldn't recommend the, the um, Eastern way like that they had in Russia of life, but he also wouldn't recommend the Western way of life either because, you know, freedom does come with responsibilities. And you, you had quoted something here yeah, by Victor Frankl. Yeah. yeah. I'll read that quote for people. It says, freedom, however, is not the last word. Freedom is only part of the story and half of the truth. Freedom is but the negative aspect of the whole phenomenon whose positive aspect is responsibleness. In, fa in fact, freedom is in danger of degenerating into mere arbitrariness unless it is lived in terms of responsibleness. That is why I recommend that the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast be supplemented by a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. I thought that was a really great quote. <laughs> yeah, that one's, that one's a, uh, very thought-provoking because... Uh, Victor Frankl wrote that right after um, surviving, you know, the Holocaust. In particular, he was at Auschwitz. Mm. And this is part of his reflection. And ultimately, he's saying that freedom is good, but mm. that, that freedom isn't inherently good. Because yeah. freedom can be used to do horrible mm -hmm. things like the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Or yes. freedom could be used to do, you know, wonderful things. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, what he's getting at is that freedom always needs to go with responsibilities. So, yeah. you know, the, that, that again, we're back now to that moral conscience component of it, that it's not just freedom for freedom's sake. And the Charter of Rights and Freedoms makes this point where it says that these are guaranteed, but they're only guaranteed up to a point. And, and, that, and I think that this is right, that the Charter should be making this, this point, right? Because again, freedom isn't inherently good. You could use that for bad. So they have to balance that. And so ultimately they say that these freedoms, the guarantee um, can be denied, but it must be demonstrably justified to deny yeah. that freedom. And that's yeah. where the rub comes. Yes. And the demonstrably justified part too I mean, we saw that as well over the last few years, right? Like that apparently is more subjective than you would want to believe, which is really tricky. I, I completely agree with you. And that's what's happening in Canada right now. And I'm glad mm -hmm. you're, I'm glad we're talking about this. And mm -hmm. I hope people appreciate like this right now is a fundamental question that Canada is wrestling with and that our legal system is in the grips of is yeah, is our legal system actually going to yeah. be based on by demonstrably justified? That means mm -hmm. evidence that mm -hmm. you must marshal evidence and support mm -hmm. for 
if you're going to deny one of these guaranteed freedoms, you yeah. have to give good reason to do yeah. so. And you're right. Right now, it's just becoming so arbitrary. And mm-hmm. and I quote in my article, places where the court just just says, you know, that they, they they just they don't want to put give they don't feel that they need to give any evidence no uh, in support of their their position yeah. and we got to challenge them on this yeah and i think that's where the church really struggles right the church really struggles with that question of well should we even challenge you know um and not saying that like as the church we challenge obviously not you know but i think for a lot of christians that is a really tough question um but let's, yeah, it's... Let's just think about that for a second, though. Notice at the beginning of the podcast, I quoted Tortullian, who argued mm-hmm. back in the second century for freedom of religion, religious mm-hmm. liberty, mm-hmm. Uh, and and then argued for that. And we had other Christians arguing for that. We are the recipients of, mm-hmm. of that hard work that they did, yeah. that we yeah. would say it was good that they, that they argued mm-hmm. for and you know, yes. uh, advocated for yeah. religious freedom. That, oh, that's, part of the religious, that's part of the Christian tradition. By the way, if yeah. anybody wants to read a great book on this, uh, the, the book called Liberty and the Things of God basically starts from Tertullian all the way up and just explains how the Christian worldview birthed religious freedom. Mm, that sounds really good. I'm going to pick that up. I wrote the title down. I'll try to remember to include that in the show notes too. But I think there's so many examples of that, right? Of like, you know, we can look back at things that happened years ago and be like, oh, we're so thankful. Like today, for example, day of recording is Memorial Day in the United States, right? And they can look back and say, we're so thankful for the service that, um, you know, their military has provided over the years because now we've inherited this freedom, right? Mm -hmm. And from Christian perspective, we can look back and think, wow, we are so grateful for people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Corey Ten Boom. But at the time, I mean, Corey Ten Boom tried to take a baby to a pastor in the country to hide it so that it wouldn't get killed. And the pastor wouldn't do it, you know, because it was against the rules. And now we can look back and look at the people that broke those rules or questioned authority and think they're heroes. But when we're living it in the moment, it's much harder for some reason to distinguish that reality. It is, isn't it? It's hard to, yeah. Who, who is the, the hero? And, and in fact, that was mm-hmm. one of the things I bring up in the article is in the early days of the Holocaust, you have physicians who were Mm-hmm. Uh, not willing to to be you know told that they that they must participate in these eugenics programs yeah and a hundred Dutch physicians were sent to concentration camps and they're now heroes for their fidelity yes. to conscience but at mm-hmm. the time I'm sure that they were uh, that's right negatively. Yeah, no, I found that part really, really interesting. And this kind of leads us into a discussion about um, I thou versus I it. Um, you had mentioned this in your article. And I know for me, just saying that out loud, like I did to our listeners, it's not going to make much sense. But maybe you could flesh that out a little bit for us, the difference between the I-thou relationship and the I-it relationship and how that is linked to dehumanization, which is then linked to atrocities that we've seen throughout history. Yeah, so kind of going back to what we were talking about there, that people, that freedom in and of itself isn't necessarily a good thing because it can be mm-hmm. used for good or it can be used for bad, but comes with this responsibility. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that responsibility is encountered when you and I come into a relationship with another person, another another human. Yes. And, and notice what I'm being very careful with my language there. I'm saying it's mm-hmm. being encountered. It's not being created. Mm-hmm. It's not like we invented this. Mm-hmm. It's something, in other words, it's a duty that's experienced that that I, in other words, an I-thou relationship means that when I come into a relationship with another person, I have responsibilities to that relationship that are different to my relationship with an I-it um, object, for example, mm-hmm. or animal. That my duties to my dog are very different than my duties to my child. Yes. And that my duties to a chair or my kitchen table mm-hmm. you know, are very different than my duties to my wife. So this is the, that distinction between an I, thou, and an I, it. And it might seem like, oh, it's such a weird academic exercise, but it has significant implications yeah. because what's happened historically is that you have people that reduce an I, thou relationship to an I, mm-hmm. it relationship. So in other words, they reduce a person to an object or an animal. And this is, this is what we mean by dehumanization. Mm-hmm. Now, once you do that, then you are capable of all sorts of atrocities. So this kind of, this might be important for a listener to understand. Mm-hmm. Any of the major atrocities of history are all predicated by dehumanization. Yes. All of them, whether mm-hmm. that be slavery or genocide, you know, the- Abortion. The, what was that? Abortion. Abortion. Yeah, that, that, like just take that one as an example. Notice that we're not, often you're not referring- to this baby, it's referred mm-hmm. to uh, a fetus or yeah. or even more dehumanizing, um, not referred to at all. And it's just ending a yeah. pregnancy. Yes. So that makes those practices much more uh, palatable mm-hmm. than if I see the humanity. Now, that's just important for us to appreciate because we have to understand how people were able to to do these terrible things in the past like mm-hmm. a genocide, like slavery, if we want to stop it from taking place in the future. Mm-hmm. And this concept of dehumanization and understanding how it works is significant. And I just want to add one more thing onto this that goes back to something we had said earlier that might help people. Mm-hmm. How do people tend to head down this path then of dehumanization? Like our, now, because I was saying, when you come into a relationship with a person, you encounter duties. Now, one way to get out of those duties then is to not see them as a person. And now I won't experience those duties. Mm -hmm. The other thing too, though, that might surprise people is historically speaking, we don't see people, even even somebody like a Hitler going, Mm -hmm. boy, I want to do something really evil today, you know, or I want to, you know, kill six six million Jews sort of idea. Mm -hmm. What you tend to see instead is justification. So what you tend to see is somebody saying, oh, I want to actually do something good but because the ends justify the means in their minds, right? Well, then it's just going to require that I do a, a whole lot of evil to get there sort of idea. It's kind of like Thanos, right? Mm-hmm. Thanos didn't say, oh, I want to go do a bunch of evil and kill half the pot, half of all life. In his mind, he thought himself doing something good. That's right. And to get there, he needed to do this mm-hmm. bad thing. Do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. And you can justify anything at that point, right? Mm -hmm. And what leads to that so often is constant propaganda, right? You start to believe it. 
Um, sometimes you create the propaganda and you start to believe your own propaganda. Sometimes the propaganda is created for you and you begin to believe that. And they can, you could be led to do anything, which that brings me to what I want to talk about next. So I would say assisted suicide is something today that everybody should be thinking about. They should be figuring out how they are thinking about assisted suicide. Um, obviously we both live in Canada and this is a big deal here right now. Most of our audience, probably 85 to 90% is actually in the U S and so they may not, may not feel the crunch as much as we do up here, but it is absolutely coming. Like you said, in port or in Oregon, um, they prescribe pills and the person can take it themselves. And so it's not exactly the same as here, but I actually look at that as like handing someone a loaded gun and -hmm. saying, have at it. Right. Um, which I think there's a lot of responsibility, obviously that comes with that sort of thing as well. So whether you're American or Canadian or from New Zealand or Australia or wherever you might be listening, this is something you should be thinking about, but in particular doctors, like you argued in this article, you know, you said, I'm not sure if you said, or if you quoted, but you had written down that physicians are the front lines of society's moral testing ground, which is absolutely true. Um, we've seen that over and (laughs) that was you. Okay. It was so good. I was like, okay. I mean, not that I don't believe you're capable of a great quote like that, but I'm like, was this some other great person in history? No, I got to take credit for that one. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was that was really good. And it's really true. Physicians are the front line of a society's moral testing ground. Um, it's hard to argue that, especially after what we've seen over the past few years. Um, so let's talk a little bit about getting back to Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. You had talked in your article about the progression of requirements for doctors in Nazi Germany. It started with really things that seemed like not a big deal, you know, like reporting yeah. genetic anomalies or malformations and stuff like that. Um, and so a really astute doctor who had a really good, solid moral grounding would have balked at that first step, right? But yeah you know, if they didn't have courage and conviction, they would have absolutely gone along with it. And it started with stuff like reporting and just snowballed from there. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about that progression that we saw in Nazi Germany and maybe tell us the story of Oskar Groening as well, the accountant from Auschwitz. Yeah. So, so first of all, if you're interested in this topic, there's a uh, uh, some great research that was done and published in a book called The Nazi Doctors. And that's some Mm. tough reading in the sense of, you know, you get into some really dark aspects of history that Mm -hmm. that sadly more people need, uh, that that I would say more people need to be aware of. Uh, A lot of people are unaware that some of the first to be tried in the Nuremberg trials were actually physicians. And and there were many physicians hung for what they did. And there were over 300 that participated uh, in... And what took place. And the, and the reason I'm bringing it up is because, I mean, in my own research, I was kind of shocked. And in, in what we saw actually coming out of the Nuremberg trials is, mm. is people's, is, you know, the experts, their testimony going, hey, if you want to know how we got to Auschwitz, it started with our physicians. And it yeah. started like you were talking about. It started with very simple referrals that... Mm. Uh, ultimately escalated into what happened. And, and in fact, when the trains, you know, stopped at Auschwitz and these, these, these poor Jewish people were let out of these trains, they were first greeted by physicians. And, 
And the physicians were the ones that were separating people and and participating in, in those ways. So it's just, that's an important thing to understand that mm-hmm. that are going back to what, what I was saying, that our physicians are the, on the front lines of mm-hmm. a society's moral testing grounds. And we need to appreciate that. That means then that freedom of conscience is actually really important for our physicians because they're the ones that are that we need as our mm-hmm. safeguards for when these boundaries are being pushed. And so in uh, Nazi Germany, that that's exactly uh, what was taking place. And as they were participating, that they began understanding that these people were being killed, mm-hmm. uh, that they were referring, but they continued to mm-hmm. go along with it as that ideology set, set in more and mm-hmm. more. And mm-hmm. as um, different historians like... Um, like Wazel argues that their conscience was numbed. And, yes. and in fact, Viktor Frankl argues that, uh, and I think he's right, he argues that their conscience was numbed uh, ultimately from the philosophies that were the propaganda that mm-hmm. were being pushed. And then other um, experts like Alexander and others that were at the trials argued the same thing. So mm-hmm. again, Man, this is a cautionary tale that we need to learn from what happened there. So you could say, okay, there's a lot of Americans listening to this. Mm-hmm. Listen, Canada should be a cautionary tale yes. to you. <laughs> but for Canadians, I was arguing, listen, Nazi Germany should be a cautionary tale for us. Mm-hmm. Now that leads to the last thing you were asking me uh, about with was regards to Groening. Uh, yeah. Oscar Groening was an accountant at Auschwitz. And in 2015, he was um, tried. Uh, he was like he was in his 90s when he was tried, and he didn't think they didn't you know he didn't think he would be tried for his participation because he was just an accountant. He wasn't directly involved in mm-hmm. the killing, but ultimately he was convicted for. And, and what what was he convicted of? Well, he was convicted for not listening to his conscience. Yeah. Uh, that ultimately he should have done something if at the very least he should have deserted, uh, but that he didn't and thus he's being held accountable. And so there is an intense irony here that mm-hmm. we need to appreciate. You have the German government holding one of their you know, persons responsible yeah. for obeying the government because he was obeying the fear yeah. at that time, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, Adolf Hitler, mm-hmm. and now he's being held accountable accountable for it. And so, as a democracy, we would say, well, that only makes sense if you defend freedom of conscience. That that he had the freedom of conscience, and he was not, and he was violating his his mm-hmm. conscience, mm-hmm. but. Uh, that that then becomes another question. Did he actually have freedom of conscience? Because in the trial, he says, listen, if I would have questioned it or done anything different, I would have been put on the front lines of the war uh, yeah. or, or killed. So he knew that there was a lot at stake sort of idea. And so I think, again, this becomes a cautionary tale of how a democracy should be versus a dictatorship. Yes, I think it was actually, again, I didn't write down if it was someone quoting or if it was you, but I think this was you, but you said this is the danger of a publicly mandated conscience. Yeah. Yeah. Then it's so true. Well, because for those of you that are unaware, this is what's happening in Canada. This is more than just um, 
made uh, taking mm-hmm. place here. Because again, places like Oregon, you have to take the pills yourself. Here in Canada, physicians are doing it. Now, Canada recognizes that it can't force its physicians or shouldn't, thankfully they recognize, that they shouldn't force their physicians to directly do providing, Mm -hmm. directly killing their patients. Mm -hmm. But in certain places in Canada, like Ontario and Nova Scotia, the... um, the board, if you will, the uh, mm-hmm. physicians and surgeons uh, of Canada have required what they call an effective referral. So you, in other words, you must make a referral that must that that is effective, that mm-hmm. you will help them find a doctor that will uh, provide made. Yeah, and that's what is the crux of my art, art, article when I'm mm-hmm. writing is that. This is um, absolutely uh, a breach of the car of the the charter, and that this cannot be justified and is incredibly dangerous. Yeah, well, I mean, effective referral is a very accurate way of saying it because in the article you had said that eighty one percent of these referrals do result in the administration of made. So if I'm a physician um, who has the my conscience is telling me, killing another human being is wrong. I can't do this. Yet I'm still forced to write an effective referral knowing that there's an 81% chance that that referral is going to result in the death of my patient. That's a lot to carry. And you had said, do we want doctors whose consciences are numb? That is a good question. I had circled that in red and put lots of stars by it because that's something that I've really been thinking about a lot. Like we think about doctors and Um, transgenderism, having to participate in those sorts of surgeries. I know they don't necessarily have to, it's quite a specialty, but still it's a question. I have a friend who is a anesthesiologist. Mm, Right. Right. Or you have different nurses like those. It's more than just a surgeon that that is. There's a lot involved there. Yes. And so now these people are being forced to participate. Yeah. Yeah. So we think of that. We think of abortion, like you said, we think of medical assistance and dying. I think again of doctors and nurses and even housekeepers in um, medicine that lost their jobs because they weren't going to take the COVID vaccine. And I'm not saying that's a right or wrong decision. I think that's a personal decision. Um, But the fact is they were willing to stand up for what they believed in to the point that they lost their job. And people can think what they want about that, whether they made a stupid decision or a good decision, it's none of my business. Um, But the fact is they can be admired because they were willing to stand up for what they believed was right. And if we start losing doctors and nurses because they're not willing, or, you know, anesthesiologists, everyone, because they're not willing to participate in um, gender transition surgeries, I say gender transition, um, other people would say gender affirming. I don't think that's accurate. Um, but uh, abortions, all of these things, if we lose all of the people that are willing to stand up for what they believe is right, we're going to be left with weak, and I know this sounds mean, and I don't mean it to sound mean, but we're going to be left with very weak people manning a very important healthcare system. And that's a really scary thought. Well, you know, even what you just said there, healthcare system. Well, look, one of yeah. the physicians that I quote in the article and that um, I really appreciate his work, his name is Far Curlin. He's a ethicist at Duke University, wrote a book called The Way of Medicine. Mm-hmm. And he talks about healthcare, uh, which mm-hmm. is 
you know, traditionally how we understood it, you're seeking the health of the patient versus what is now being called um, provider of services model. And and so now what you are is, you know, you're just, uh, you're not really seeking the health of a patient. You're just providing a service for the patient of whatever that patient wants or society's telling you that you must do. So that really becomes problematic, doesn't it? Because people tend to go into medicine because they care deeply for people and Mm -hmm. want to help them to become healthy versus, so, so then you have to ask the question, okay, who is the, who is going to be attracted to a provider of services model? And are those the kind of people that you want operating on you or that you want Mm -hmm. overseeing you versus somebody who uh, cares deeply, you know, for Mm -hmm. what is going to lead to your health. And that might mean that they disagree with you, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, and about what you think is going to be best for you sort Mm -hmm. of idea. So we are right now seeing a major transition in what medicine is, and we need to become aware of this and participate in the dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I'm glad you brought this up because that was the very next thing I had written down for us to talk about. And I think that if there are people listening to this who would disagree with you and I on many things, they really need to think about that provider of service model. And like you said, like, who are we attracting to medicine with that model? And you had mentioned that there are three norms to that model. Um, And I'm going to take them backwards from what you said, what the patient wants, what is technologically possible and what the law permits. And that's a huge one. That's something we've talked about on this podcast quite a lot in the past is how law tends to dictate um, people's perception of morality. Mm -hmm. Like abortion is much more a question in the U.S. than it is in Canada. We've been told in Canada that that discussion is not going to be opened again by politicians on from any party, essentially. Um, And so people have kind of accepted it as abortion is good. It's, It's good. It's moral. Whereas in places where it is not the law, that doesn't follow, right? That that question of morality is still actually a question. So mm-hmm. I think that's a really important point. What the law permits really changes the way people think. And it's the same thing in Nazi Germany, right? Like this is what the government said was moral at the time. And so the doctors embraced it. Um, I think, you know, like the Hippocratic Oath, you had mentioned that as well. Like the Nazi doctors say that they embraced the Hippocratic Oath, but it was so twisted, mm-hmm. which is... Yeah, the, their view of medicine had become so twisted that it mm-hmm. was now an ideology of the political party, of course. Particularly when we're thinking about what the law permits, uh, I could just give you just an anecdotal uh, you know, piece of evidence with regards to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a friend of mine, she was a nurse as a palliative, she was a palliative care nurse. And she would. She told me, "Listen, Andy. Before made came into law, mm-hmm. um, became legalized, she said the vast majority, like ninety percent of the physicians that she worked with, were against uh, doctor assisted suicide. But oh, as wow. soon as the law was passed, mm-hmm. it flipped, and now ninety percent were for. And so, this is something that we need to be really cautious of: is that yes. the law can start to dictate." morality. Mm-hmm. And that can become problematic because as we see historically, 
societies can err. And this is where the freedom of conscience becomes so important is we need that freedom of conscience to be able to let us know mm-hmm. when the society is erring and that people can begin to push back. And so that's that balancing of what needs to take place naturally within a democracy and that we have yes. to protect. And this is yeah. where I'm really challenging what's going on right now in Canada is I'm saying, hey, listen, we're, we're holding this loosely. We're not protecting this. And this can, this is going to be disastrous. We've seen mm. this historically that it's, that it's disastrous. Oh, absolutely. And I think it also brings us back to the subjectivity of the demonstrably justified words, you know, yeah. like um, speaking again about the, the Nazi Germany doctors who full, like wholeheartedly said they are following the Hippocratic oath. Meanwhile, they were, fully participating in eugenics because they were in the service of quote, larger healing. Right. And so in that case, it was considered demonstrably justified. I mean, I know they wouldn't have used those exact words because that's our language that we use here in Canada, but that's essentially what it means. They would have considered that demonstrably justified. Um, I think you're right. Society's error. They would have seen it as um, doing they, they would have understood that as doing society a favor and that this was going to ultimately lead mm-hmm. to the health of the society. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting there that has to take place then is there, you know, Canada works off of something called case law. So you look at other cases and then that helps you to navigate forward sort of idea, at least here, here in Canada. And mm-hmm. we have something called the Oaks test that comes right. from a court case from the, from the eighties where we then put some stipulations on, okay, mm-hmm. what does demonstrably justified actually entail? And ultimately, like we were mentioning earlier, it means you need to marshal forward evidence, you know, mm-hmm. and both logical evidence and scientific evidence where you're, where you're, you know, making a case for this. But that's where things get really concerning is when we've seen here in Canada, the courts just d- dismiss that entirely. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, even on the court of appeal, the, the mm-hmm. courts actually just give a hypothetical situation where they think that, where they argue that, you know, access to care, you know, could hypothetically happen as though that's good enough. And, yes. and again, it's where we need to really push back on, on our courts going, no, this is what we've said in the charter, which is, I think our charter is, is good, that mm-hmm. these are important for the health of a democracy. Well, we need to hold to this and hold to what we're saying actually is demonstrably justified. And you're not currently doing that, particularly mm-hmm. here, because ultimately it's become ideological. Yeah. And ideology has become the idol, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think which is self a, a, autonomy. and ideology. Autonomy yes. is the idol, by the way. In in the charter, you're seeing this idea of, it's kind of in our society in general, right? It's that extreme individualism. It's all about yes. you. It's yeah. it's what you you know you doing you, but mm. it's it's that being played out in the court system right now. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, when your highest courts and highest levels of government are, I will, I guess, I'll just say, corrupted to that point where they're not actually doing things like the Oaks test. They're just kind of saying what's going to be popular opinion at this point, right? It's ideology, service to ideology. You can't necessarily hang your hat on 
what they're going to say. So I really like what you had written in here. It's page 11 of your article. It's talking about groaning. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit. It says, consider that in the case of groaning, the German courts convicted him, a German citizen for his military service, because his conscience did not act against the orders of his superiors and the Nazi government, which was then in power. It is this irony that powerfully testifies to three key ideas. And I know we've talked about this section a bit, but I really want to highlight these three key ideas because, like I said, we cannot just blindly follow our highest courts and our highest government because they're not acting appropriately when it comes to stuff like this. So three key ideas. First, knowledge of wrongdoing without action can make one complicit. I mean, we all teach our kids that, right? Like it's, it's so simple, yet we somehow forget this when we grow older. Second, the government cannot coherently have it both ways. It is unreasonable to direct one's conscience and simultaneously hold one responsible for ignoring the voice of their conscience. Third, this case ought to remind the courts that a society can err and there is necessity to protect one's fundamental freedom and responsibilities of conscience for the sake of the individual and the nation. Um, really, really well written. Thank you for that. And when I think of, uh, actually a lot of people that listen to this podcast are in the medical profession. And so when episodes like this come up, they listen eagerly because they want to know that there are people out there that are thinking about this with them, that are trying to support them in any way that we can. Because like you said, there's huge level of burnout. There's huge ethical weights being placed on the sh on the shoulders of our medical professionals. So, on that yeah. note, if there's any anybody that would like this article, if you mm -hmm. reach out to e either of us, I'd be happy um, to make it available. Mm -hmm. but yeah, I you know it was interesting because I was listening to um, right now. Uh, and maybe it'd be good just kind of explain where things have gotten to because yes. it's, it's really developed um, even further. Mm -hmm. There's some things going on right now that that you know that we really need to be aware of and need to mm -hmm. participate in. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this is, by the way, one of the biggest challenges is mm -hmm. being willing to just to even to educate yourself and, yeah. and participate even at that level. True. There's a great organization called Cardus, and Michael. Uh, that runs it. Uh, I know him well, and and he and I were talking the other day, and he was just saying, Andy, this has been the biggest frustration for that for for me. He was saying, uh, but for for Cardis, as they've been trying to educate Canadians, but for the longest time, Canadians just haven't cared about yeah. about me. And yeah. now, though, Canadians are starting to care, and one of the reasons why Canadians are starting to care is because this. Law has um, expanded so rapidly mm -hmm. in in its uh, application that people are have grown more and more concerned till this point mm -hmm. now, where uh, made has now expanded to the point of being made available to those whose sole underlying condition is a is mental health, mm -hmm. uh, and that then has obviously set off even more alarm bells that that people are worried for those with mental health uh, and that now that they could potentially be able to access made. Now that was supposed to happen in March, by the way, of this year. Mm -hmm. However, uh, what we found is that so many uh, psychologists were pushing back on this and just other organizations. The I think the government was receiving so much pushback mm -hmm. and realizing that this was 
a dumpster fire that yeah. they had to pause it. Um, mm-hmm. So they didn't go forward yet, but they've put it on. They've just basically said, we'll come back to it in one year. But this very well could move forward uh, in, in March of next year. And this is something that that we need to be uh, aware of, of what's, you know, what's taking place. I mean, I was talking with somebody the other day who had dealt with mental illness and mm-hmm. she was saying to me, Andy, if somebody had made made available to mm-hmm. me, I would have taken it. Oh man. Right. But here's yeah. the irony. Now, of course, now she's like, of course I wouldn't do that. But she mm-hmm. said, Andy, the irony is when I went to go meet with my, with, with a counselor, uh, she said, listen, when somebody is, you know, going through mental health, uh, mental health crisis, one of the first pieces of advice that they give you is to not make any rash life changes. Don't quit your job, sell your car sort of idea. Just just be patient. This, you know, we'll work through this sort of idea. But Mm -hmm. yet we have a government that's saying, don't you worry, we'll make sure you be able to take your own life because that's not rash. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Yes. And it actually brought to mind the question also of, the way our health healthcare again in quotes system is structured, right? It's a public system. Our tax dollars are paying for it. Again, having been inside the system, I know how wonky it is where the, the way money is spent. And also people are looked at as a burden financially as well, right? And yeah. so when we see people that have these chronic health conditions or chronic mental illness or things like that, or frequent flyers to the emergency room because they're on drugs and, you know, these things, um, they're looked at as money wasters, which is, again, completely dehumanizing because this is a public pay. This is the government's cost at this point. And that, I don't, I'm not saying that this is a reason that made is, has become so easily accessible, but I don't think we can dismiss it either that people are looked at as maybe, well, maybe they're just too expensive. Um, Like I said, that's a really cynical way to look at it. But I think to not consider that that could be a small part of it would be a little bit perhaps naive. Well, I I 100% agree with you because this is being debated right now in Canada Mm. by because you can Google this if people are curious, but Roger Foley, Foley, um, well, it, was um, basically having that forced on him, having made forced mm-hmm. on him because mm-hmm. he was being viewed as a as a drain on the medical system. Oh my gosh! And he actually recorded the conversations that that were happening. And this is, by the way, as a vet, and oh. here in Canada, and he and that then made the news. But of course, does that really make the news in Canada? You know, and how yeah. <laughs> how widely is that story being disper- dispersed? Oh, well, yeah. That's part of the propaganda problem is yes. here in Canada where our media mm-hmm. is funded by mm-hmm. the government. And if you're mm-hmm. in America and you're unaware of that, yes, that is true. Please pray for us. So, yes. <laughs> um, but the, the, again, these are... Um, these are important things, you know, for us to understand, particularly here in Canada, because our medical system cuts both ways, I would say. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, when you're reading the court documents, the court saying, hey, we are a publicly funded system. 
So Mm -hmm. it's not like there's alternatives. And that's one of the reasons why they're Mm -hmm. justifying forcing physicians to participate is because in their minds, oh, well, there isn't options because it's government funded. So it cuts that way. But then what you're bringing up is it cuts the other way too, where people Mm -hmm. then can be viewed as as a burden or or an expense. Now, this is why, again, it's so important that a, do- a physician shouldn't be mandated to refer mm-hmm. and should be able to voice their conscience because clearly there can be cases of somebody, you know, desiring made where the physician, even if they, af- even if they are for made mm-hmm. that physician, for example, mm-hmm. where it could very well be the case that maybe maids being forced on somebody by family or has been forced on somebody because of the system. Or Mm -hmm. uh, because this person views themselves as a burden sort of idea. Mm -hmm. Like, are we actually working to, again, this gets back to healthcare versus provider of services. Mm -hmm. Are we actually caring about that patient and their health, realizing that that might mean that you disagree with them and what they're after and what's going to ultimately lead to their good? That's right. And that's, that's the question with so many things too. Um, Again, I bring it back to transgenderism, you know, like what is ultimately for that person's good, right? The truth, the truth is ultimately for their good. Same with this, right? Um, And you had said earlier that it's really important that people do look into this. It can be, it can feel like a lot of work, I think, for people to look into these big issues that are going on in our country and in our world. Um, And you said Canadians haven't cared. And I think that's very accurate. I think that we live very, very, very comfortable lives here in Canada, right? And we don't have to care a lot of the time until all of a sudden we feel like we're being pressed a little bit. And it's really unfortunate that that's what it takes for us to like wake up a little bit, but that does seem to be the reality. And I think that we're going to be experiencing more and more of these wake-up calls as, as we go. So this is something that people need to prepare themselves for. And and here's one last thought then to think about is this, uh, you know, as, as we think about this and where things mm-hmm. are heading, you know, it was with what we've talked a lot about Nazi Germany and stuff mm-hmm. uh, on in this podcast. And it's important to realize that after right after the war, I mean, right after the war, you mm-hmm. have the, the UN uh, crafting what's called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Right. And that ultimately you have a society saying, we really screwed up. We don't ever want to go back there again. We don't want to make that mistake again. Mm-hmm. So then they put together this UDHR that, that says, well, here's going to guide us as we move forward so that we don't do that again. And I think it's significant to note mm-hmm. that uh, the UN put out a special Raptors report critiquing Canada specifically in our made policy, its rapid expansion and including mm-hmm. mental health into it and arguing that Canada very well, uh, if it continues down this path, particularly with uh, making it available to people with mental uh, health, mm-hmm. uh, that, we, that we're very well going to be in violation of the UDHR and a number of other international agreements. Yes. And again, that this should concern you that just think about this for a moment, that we have a static mandate to our physicians, you must refer, but yet we have a dynamic law that is ever expanding, even so mm-hmm. much that the UN's calling out Canada that they be in violation of the UDHR wow. and international agreements, but yet our physicians still must refer. 
I mean, yeah. I would hope that people even that are for made would see that this is terrible. Yes. And and that this can only lead to problems down the, down the road, if mm-hmm. not already, with, mm-hmm. again, a static mandate to refer and a dynamic law that is that is ever expanding. I, like this is the definition of a slippery slope argument. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, slippery slope, yes, but I think a lot of people are already at the very bottom. You know, I've been on Instagram lately kind of looking for some of these videos and reels that of people in support of made. And there was actually one that I was going to try to play on here, but I couldn't get a hold of it. But another one that I'm thinking of, it was just this girl talking through um, why she can't understand why people are opposed to assisted suicide. Because she's like, if I would stop my dog suffering, why wouldn't I stop a human suffering? And I think this is why it's so great that you are heavily invested into apologetics and you are having this discussion about made because ultimately people need to ask themselves the question, like, why does human life matter so much? Mm -hmm. What makes it different? What makes it different than a dog? Because that one girl I mentioned, I think she's an extreme example. I think most people would realize that there is something different about humanity, right? And those are the kinds of questions that apologetics seeks to answer. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. And even take that one. This is something people just, again, need to be aware of. Society tends to use extreme examples to make a general, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, law, like universalized uh, application. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they'll use these extreme examples of people that are uh, in this, you know, terrible pain. But by the way, any Mm -hmm. physician, you've been in medicine, know, like Mm -hmm. we, I have a friend again, that's a, that is a, uh, anesthesiologists, they can manage pain. Absolutely. They can manage pain. Absolutely. But this is not, when you get into the discussion, this is absolutely not about pain. And the vast mm-hmm. majority of people, and again, Canada keeps these statistics. So it's not like these statistics are being made up or even outside. These are Canadian statistics. But uh, the vast majority of people that are accessing MADE are doing so because of autonomy issues, not because of pain issues. Yeah. It's because they want to have control of their lives and they want to yes. control when they die and and how they die and specifically that they don't want to take their own life. They want somebody else to do it for them. Yes, actually. And that makes me incredibly sad. I had found another reel on Instagram of a granddaughter with her grandmother and the grandmother had decided to pursue um, assisted suicide. And they were having this discussion about like how she came to this decision and how happy they both were about this. And the grandmother was talking about how she just wants to have control over how her life ends. And as a Christian, it just made me really, really sad because the last thing I want at the end of my life or even in my life is control, complete control, because I know that there's someone who loves me more, who, who knows how my life should end. And I can trust him more than I can trust myself. And I think that it would be really difficult to live your life with that amount of fear and unknowns. Um, Because then I can see how people would get to that point um, of wanting to control. But the fact is you can't control what happens next, right? You can only control up to that point. And it just breaks my heart. Well, it's interesting, by the way, that to control, have control over their own lives requires that they control other people's lives. 
So, yes. and the physician yeah. being one of them, but, and maybe this is a good place to, to, mm-hmm. to end, but it's also mm-hmm. the families as well, because what's mm-hmm. becoming more and more popular in Canada is people deciding that they want made and then requiring and asking their families to be there as they take their lives. And, oh, yeah. and so the, I, I, cause I, I mean, I had somebody call me just the other day saying, man, grandma decides she wants made mm-hmm. and wants the, fa- the all mm-hmm. the family there, uh, to participate in her death. Mm-hmm. And the, these are the sorts of moral dilemmas that mm-hmm. are becoming commonplace here in Canada. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely true. Well, I think you're right. That is a good place to wrap it up. I've kept you for over an hour. Very grateful for it. And like you said, if anyone's looking for the article that Andy wrote, you can either email him or me and I can get you in touch. Um, it is excellent. 27 pages that you will be glued to <laughs> until the very end. I, I really enjoyed it. So thank you for that. that. That's very kind of you. And I didn't mean to, to end the podcast. <laughs> no, no, you know what? It's been great being with you. Yeah, no, I actually had like a page and a half of things that I wanted to hit and we hit all of them naturally and in order. So, well, that's awesome. I wasn't expecting that because I'm usually a little scattered. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks again, Andy. Yeah, it was great being with you. Thank you. What a great conversation that was with Andy regarding medical assistance in dying. I'm really thankful for the work he did, not only in that article that we discussed today, but just his ministry in general at Apologetics Canada. So if you're looking actually to get your hands on that article that this episode was based on, you can email info at apologeticscanada.com and they would be happy to send it to you. You can also go to apologeticscanada.com to see what they're all about. And you can find Apologetics Canada as well on Instagram and I would imagine other social as well. Their handle is Apologetics Canada. That keeps it really simple and easy for you to find. And their podcast is called The AC Podcast. Again, highly recommend that podcast. They do a really great job thinking through some big issues of today and talking through them. So I just want to reiterate some of the main things that we talked about today. Of course, we talked about apologetics, which I really believe, as I said, at the beginning is so important in today's day and age. People have questions. People are um, feeling in opposition to the gospel. So it's so important to know why we believe. So thank you to Andy for talking us through that a little bit. But then we also talked about the I-thou relationship versus the I-it relationship and dehumanization throughout the ages and how it has led to horrible things. In fact, most horrible human-led atrocities throughout history are because or stem from dehumanization in some way. We talked a lot about the doctors in Nazi Germany. Germany, we talked about um, Groening and his conviction, even though he was an accountant, because of the fact that he shut off his conscience, essentially. We talked about the irony of that. We talked about the danger of a publicly mandated conscience, which is really what we're seeing today. It's not the same as in like, we're not living in an official and actual dictatorship, but we do live in a world where there's a lot of propaganda, there's a lot of social pressure, which can result in self-censorship. And 
that leads to these sorts of things. It's like little tiny building blocks. Um, Andy and I were talking a little bit at the end of the episode, actually. And I will often hear from people that are like, well, why do you talk about some of the things that are going wrong in Canada? Like, shouldn't we just be so grateful that we do live in Canada? And yes, absolutely. I am so thankful that I was born Canadian. However, the reason I'm thankful that I live in Canada is because it is a free country. And the only way that it stays free is for all of us to be awake and aware and to realize that we want to keep it that way. And we are moving down a path um, that is not as free as people think it is. So that's why it's important to have discussions like this about things like assistance in dying, medical assistance in dying, and rights and responsibilities of conscience, and the twisting of language that is rampant in today's culture, because twisting of language has been happening since the beginning of time. And it has it is what has led to so many of the horrible things throughout history so whether you are canadian american or something else just be aware that these big things are going on and i just encourage you to really take the time to look into them to um, hold them up against your own personal belief system so that you can know how to think about these things and so that when you are pressed you will know how to respond as always, thank you so much for listening to the Boom Clap podcast. You can find us at theboomclapcommunity.com. That's a place where you can just support the podcast, but also get to know us a little bit more. We have weekly emails rounding up our episodes and things going on in the world. We have monthly meetups with you guys. We also do uh, book studies together. So there's lots that you can gain from the Boom Clap community. So check that out, theboomclapcommunity.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Boom Clap Podcast or personally I am on Instagram at Cecily.dicky. Rita is on Instagram at Rita Rogers Co or RitaRogersCo.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.